0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to Clerically Speaking. I have with me today, Dr. John Grabowski. Uh, he has written several books. He is the uh, professor, a professor of moral theology and ethics at the Catholic University of America. He's done a few little side gigs like uh, serve as theological advisor to the USCCB. Uh, Pope Benedict appointed him to the Pontifical Council for the Family along with his wife. He was also appointed by Pope Francis to serve as an expert on the 2015 Synod on the Family. But most importantly, some years ago, he taught marriage and family life at Catholic University of America, where I was a student. Definitely his crowning achievement. Good morning, Dr. Grabowski. How are you doing? Good morning, Father Anthony. It's great to be with you. Thanks. So first question, very important one. Uh, so
1: you went to... Undergrad- and thank you for properly putting in perspective my... Yes. my my work and my career. That's I appreciate that.
0: You know, I I try to take this job very professionally. uh, So I try to do my research on things. Speaking of which, um, so you were a Steubenville undergrad. Is that correct? That is correct. And so uh, when you were there, was it the same as it is now in that Pittsburgh is the capital
1: of Steubenville, Ohio? (laughs) Oh, boy, I'm going to get myself in trouble. Pittsburgh was kind of the only urban oasis within reach for uh, us on that campus back in the early 1980s. So mm-hmm. capital, I don't know, but um, <laughs> go-to place if you wanted to be in a town larger than, you know, a small Rust Belt town, definitely. Yes. So we'll take that as a yes. <laughs> uh, <so> <laughs> <today>. <laughs> good, good uh so today we're gonna be
0: talking about your book unraveling gender the battle over sexual difference so this is just a mild disclaimer not that we're going to be crude or anything but we'll be talking about gender sexual difference those sort of issues so sometimes you know kids listen to the podcast with their families just to let you guys know we're going to be talking about this kind of stuff uh and so uh as i was picking up your book and reading it one of the things that i get concerned with with this topic is you know as a priest and i think a lot of catholics you know um, we know people who identify as LGBTQ, uh, plus, uh, family members, that sort of thing. Um, and, uh, I kind of liked how you started off your book and maybe I'll start with this question. Uh, it's, it feels like an odd question to ask, but what is this book not about?
1: Oh, that's, that is a good question. Yeah. Um, the book is definitely not about, um, trying to attack or blame um, individuals who would identify as LGBTQ plus, um, even it's not about attacking ardent promoters of gender ideology, even though I'm I argue that's a pretty destructive set of ideas mm-hmm. where it's it's not about um, opposing or hating people. Um, Everyone is made in the image and likeness of God. Everyone is loved by God. So we have to be clear on that at the outset. This book is instead about understanding a set of ideas that describes a path to human flourishing and fulfillment for people who are struggling with their gender identity, who are gender discordant in some way that really is not a good path to happiness and fulfillment. And so those ideas have to be challenged. They have to be refuted. But the people themselves, were called to love. We're called to love. We're called to invite others to the same mercy that we're experiencing from the Lord. Absolutely. And so a question. So uh,
0: your field of studies, how did you get into moral theology? What drew you to this? You've worked uh, a lot with theology of body as well. What drew you to this sort of field of study?
1: Well, um, back when I was a graduate student at Marquette University, I um, And casting around for a dissertation topic, I was really kind of captivated by the vision of the human person of John Paul II, the theology of the body, which you mentioned. Um, But I I was hesitant to make that like the focus of my dissertation, um, because frankly, that could make it hard to get a job at certain places. Um, If you write a JP2 dissertation, people are going to say, oh, you're one of, okay, I know who you are. So, what I ended up writing was a survey dissertation on the human person and sexual difference, kind of across the spectrum of Catholic theology, more of a survey, and certainly John Paul II, an important part of that. But, so, that was, my my research was actually I was working in the area of systematic theology, but through an accident of God's providence, I got hired at CUA to teach moral 31 years ago, and no one's figured that out yet, so I've been there ever since.
0: Okay, yeah, so we haven't solved moral theology is what you're saying.
1: <laughs> yeah, true, true, but it, it, it's it's a great thing. Um, the best way to learn about something is to have to teach it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So it's been a good education. Good. Good. <laughs> Um, And so, uh,
0: you know, the the topic, it seems, especially lately, um, there's a lot of stuff in the news, uh, this sort of thing. Um, But what uh, motivated you to uh, approach the matter in this? Because you go through a lot of like the history of the idea. Um, What kind of uh, motivated you to write this book?
1: Well, um, because this was my area of dissertation research, it's a been an area of interest. It's something I've taught courses on and written about over the years, but kind of in the back of my mind, it was always I'm going to go back to this dissertation research and kind of update it and publish it. Um, I didn't do that when I got to CUA because I was advised, you know, don't don't worry about publishing your dissertation because that was how you got your degree. You need to publish other articles to get tenure, so that's what I did. But then just kind of watching. Um, to to borrow a word, uh, the culture kind of unraveled on this topic over in recent years, right? With the Obergefell decision by the Supreme Court legalizing same-sex marriage, the Bostock decision extending Title IX protections to people who identify as transgender in the workplace and elsewhere. It was like, wow, this is really kind of coming apart really quickly. And so I was actually planning on writing a different book, a book on marriage. And I really felt like praying. Um, the Lord said, no, you you need to write that other book now. Mm-hmm. This is the time. Um, and, you know, so I worked on it for a couple of years. Um, and then just, as you say, watching what has been going, continue to go on in our culture in recent months, um, over the last year or so, it was like, yeah, this is um, I, I think this was the right time to return to this topic and, and, and do something. And thankfully, I'm not the only one. There's a lot of people who are kind of taking this up.
0: Yeah. And so uh, I'm, uh, I'll be 33 soon. And I, I still remember like the uh, uh, controversy arguments, things around uh, just when gay marriage was being legalized. Uh, and then very quickly, culture getting comfortable with that. And a lot of that is just because a lot of people know uh, people who are gay, you know, family members, friends, nice people, loving people, all that. It kind of became normalized. Um, and then it seems uh, stuff with the um, uh, transgender and gender ad- ideology seemed to like explode out of nowhere. Um, but you kind of talk about how like, well, things have progressed quickly recently, um, what's kind of the history or what are like the core issues that brought us into this?
1: Mm, um, And a lot of the book does try to take a, a dive into that kind of genealogy. And there, there are a lot of contributing factors, Father Anthony. Okay. Um Pope Benedict, in one of his statements on gender ideology, points us toward existentialist thought and kind of the denial of the idea of human nature. Simone de Beauvoir, writing in her book, The Second Sex, said, you know, gender, gender is kind of what the culture assigns to us. But what's happened more recently, especially with postmodern thought, with people like Judith Butler and others, And Benedict describes this um, in his 2012 statement we've transitioned from saying gender is something that's assigned to you by the culture to gender is something you decide for yourself and you create for yourself, which is how we get to, you know, 70 plus genders on Facebook or the UN debating treaties with over 100 genders and failing to recognize all of those could mean you are uh, violating human rights according to the UN. Um, So there's been kind of these philosophical shifts in the way we think about the human person. And at the same time, we've been going through bigger cultural shifts that have kind of really uprooted the family and uprooted people's sense of their own identity, the the industrial revolution, which kind of took first fathers and then mothers out of the family, turned children into, in many people's minds, uh a burden rather than a blessing, because work is now outsourced from the home. So every mouth that's born into the home becomes another drag on the family's economic well-being. The sexual revolution, um, and especially powered by contraception, kind of detached fertility from marriage, from children, so that those just became separate moving parts that you could pick and choose among. And that's kind of really where the culture is now. And then the ongoing advance of technology. And in in two ways, I think, really important for this issue. One, the digitalization of the way we think about ourselves, right? We can can have online identities Mm. that we can alter at will. We can change our online reality and profiles. And that, in many people's minds, creates this sense, hey, you know, my identity is just something I can... Um, it's fluid. It's something I can can articulate and change as I move forward. So our bodies then, when we start to absorb that way of thinking, are no longer a window into who we are as persons. They're a screen on which we project an identity. And we can use medical and other technology to kind of rewrite that identity and the way our body displays it. So all of those things kind of coming together over the last century or two, I think have kind of created this perfect storm that's uprooted, upended um, the way we think about ourselves, our bodies and the sexually differentiated character of our bodies.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And speaking of that kind of uh, Genesis, you mentioned you've been teaching for 30 years now, 31 this year. Yeah. And so you've had all kinds of students, seminarians, uh, lay people, Have you noticed a difference in in their attitudes toward things? Have things become more difficult as you explain or talk about these ideas? What's kind of, have you noticed a a
1: trend or a change in that? That's that's a really interesting question, Father Anthony. I mean, I do notice, um, I think you can see the marks of the culture more deeply in people and people either kind of carrying some of the wounds of the culture and that destabilization and the, the deep sense of who am I, Mm -hmm. you know, where, where do I belong? Where do I find my identity? Um, And in some cases that leads people to say, come in, uh, come into a theology class as an undergrad, especially saying, I know there's gotta be more. Mm. I know there's got to be an alternative to this because I can see the effects out there with friends and family and people I know who are just this isn't working for them. So where do I find something? So there's I think there's a deeper hunger, but I do see some of the I mean, we're very polarized as a culture, right, politically and otherwise. And I think Mary Eberstadt in her most recent book, Primal Screams, is right when she says that. That itself is kind of the fruit of the sexual revolution, Hmm. because the sexual revolution has so kind of wounded families and wounded. I mean, family and parish, those are kind of places where people get their basic sense of self and belonging. And if that's not there, then I've got to find a group who can give that to me. I've got to find a group where I can find my identity reinforced and then if I identify with that group and someone disagrees with my group, it's an attack on me and my identity. So our politics has become so toxic because we can't have political discussions and disagreements. Instead, it's all about these fragile identities that people are walking around with and having to defend those.
0: Yeah. Uh, And speaking of that, you mentioned kind of like the wounds of the culture. I think it can be difficult for Catholics who are striving for holiness, who are you know, doing their best to go to the sacrament all that good stuff. I think it's sometimes hard for us to realize in what ways the culture has influenced us. So for example, I think there is kind of a crisis right now in understanding uh, masculinity, femininity, even within the church. Yeah. So in an effort to um, like looking outside, realizing that what the world is telling us is wrong um, sometimes I have found among more popular Catholic writers, commentators, there ends up being a caricature of masculinity and femininity, um, and you know stuff like basically the marital debt is equivalent to sexual slavery, or women have to be this, or men have to be that, um, and that seems to confuse things even more. So it's hard to find voices that
1: actually get back to what the Catholic Church really teaches. Oh, well, I, I I would agree, um, and I think. I mentioned the the polarization. I, I think it happens in both directions, right? Mm-hmm. There are people who just, oh no, the church is promoting um, the subjugation of women to men or the, so kind of drinking the, the the second wave feminist Kool-Aid and seeing the church in a very, and it's teaching in a very adversarial light. But on the other hand, very traditional Catholics who will say, no, no, no. What the church teaches is to be a man or a woman is to fulfill these specific roles in exactly this way, and if you deviate in the least way, um, then you're outside the boundary of the. So you see that among a lot of kind of traditionalist-minded Catholics, uh, and again, it's a, it's a, it's a false. Again, it's a false, it's a caricature in both sides of what the church actually offers us, right? Because the church offers us a vision that says, no, as men and women, we have these gifts. John Paul, and now Pope Francis, uses the language of the genius of the sexes, the genius of men and women. And those flow into our vocations to be a mother, a father, a husband, a wife. But how we live that out in given cultures... uh, can look different, and that's okay, right? Um, Pope Francis has a great distinction in Amoris Letizia 56. He says, um, Sex, the biological reality of sexual difference, and gender, the socio cultural interpretation of that, can be distinguished, but they can't be separated.
0: Hmm.
1: So, in other words, it's, you know, se- sex roles, what it looks like to be a husband or wife in a given culture might look one way in a traditional African culture and look very different in an Asian culture or a Latin American culture or an American culture. And that's okay, as long as those un- that understanding of those roles is connected to and flows from the deeper reality of our bodies, their sexual difference, and our basic vocations as men and women in the church. Mm-hmm. So the church gives us this vision that, is deep it's flexible um and it gets distorted uh both by kind of opponents uh you know people taking shots at the church and by people who see themselves as promoting a brand of Catholicism
0: yeah um and so a lot of focus uh like of your book is um, kind of this uh battle between what biblical Catholic theology offers is a human flourishing versus what the world offers, which is kind of this um, facade of happiness or flourishing, but the destructive nature of where these ideas uh, lead to concretely. Um,
1: is that fair? Yeah, it is. And and I mean, I which is one reason why in the book, I argue that ultimately, I think Gender ideology is just a new iteration of Gnosticism. Mm-hmm. It's 21st century Gnosticism because it really sees the body and our what some people now like to call our sex assigned at birth as an, something to be overcome rather than a gift to be embraced and an integral part of who we are. Um, But that's a false understanding of the human person. That's a false understanding of Christian spirituality, right? Any spirituality that says, no, your body is evil and has to be overcome, rewritten, transcended. You're not dealing with Christian spirituality, right? We are an integral whole of body and soul. And so any authentic Christian spirituality, any path to human happiness and flourishing has to take into account both our bodies and our souls and the way they interact with one another and the way our body is an integral part of our identity. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. And so let's get, um, down to kind of, uh, experiential sort of level. So a a question that I get as a priest sometimes, okay. For example, um, uh, I was uh, talking to a person, different parish than I'm assigned at now, a uh, young guy, must have been like 10, 11, 12, um, and was kind of telling me that he has been uh, lying to himself uh, about the fact that he's a boy. He knows that deep down inside, he's a girl. And he was sharing with this to me as a kind of very sort of profound um, realization where, you know, one day, once he makes enough money, he'll be able to change that. And so I'm looking at this kid <laughs> and it's like, what do you do? <laughs> like, what? like, okay. So that, that's one particular kind of example, but uh, just the fact that for whatever reason, and the church is kind of um, uh, agnostic about the reasons why this happens. Um, people have these experiences or these feelings, which are not chosen or anything and struggle with their place in the church and what that means and how do i make this into a question um (laughs) so you know um what would you say because what this is a concern of parents is a concern of a lot of people what kind of uh advice counsel how do you handle these things it's a big question but
1: (laughs) no it's a great question um and i think there I would make a distinction between two different kinds of cases uh, in terms of gender discordance. The one, the, the the young the young boy who you're describing here, I would, if I'm a parent, if I'm a religious educator, priest, pastoral counselor, and someone shares that, one of the things I think of first and remember first is that. Every study that's been done has found that 80 to 90 percent of cases of childhood discordance, gender discordance, resolve themselves on their own by the time the person reaches adulthood, usually without any medical or psychological intervention. So The idea that, oh, boy, well, this this boy, we have to uh, enable him to socially transition right now and use his preferred pronouns and the dress of dress like the opposite sex uh, and put him on puberty blockers because he's approaching adolescence. And then once he's in adolescence, put him on cross sex hormones. So his body starts to develop characteristics associated with being a girl. And then once he's of the age of um, consent, whatever that is in the state that he's in, he can have quote, gender transitioning or gender affirming surgeries to cosmetically reconfigure the appearance of his body. I mean, just given the fact that in the vast majority of cases, by the time a gender discordant child reaches adulthood, the gender discordance resolves, the tomboy girl just becomes a woman who likes sports Mm -hmm. and competition, The, the kind of artsy boy becomes a man who, um, you know, likes, likes poetry and likes literature. And, you know, that's all okay. That's all, that's all fine. Um, so I, I would start with, with just that awareness, but I would distinguish that from the case of the young adult in their, you know, late teens, twenties, um, maybe who, shows no sign of gender discordance throughout childhood and suddenly is exposed to gender ideology or a peer group that's uh really into being non-binary and gender fluid and suddenly they kind of buy into this and then they start kind of absorbing this set of ideas and then going back over the whole of their life and saying oh This is why I was unhappy in this situation or that situation. And so they write themselves a script Mm -hmm. that kind of retells their history. That young adult, you're going to have to respond to very differently than the 10, 11 year old boy who's struggling with gender discordance, right? Because while in the first case, time will probably resolve and clarify that it might not. I mean, there are cases of children who have gender discordance that per- persists into adulthood. But the case of the young adult who has absorbed this view, that's the person who I think is posed. And the clinical name for this is rapid onset gender dysphoria, mm. right? Someone who has an adult, suddenly their, their gender identity is destabilized. That's the person who really needs careful listening, accompaniment um, someone to walk with them, work with them, and just, first of all, hear their story yeah. and accept them and love them. But then in the context of building a, a friendship, a relationship of love, say, hey, you know, this set of ideas says you're going to be happy if you do these things, but actually the data doesn't support that. And there's a better, there's a better way for you to seek that happiness and wholeness. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, So I teach
0: RCIA uh, and we uh, went over some of this uh, stuff because of course it's going to be pertinent to them. Um, But one of the, um, uh, one of our team members uh, asked me this question and I'm not sure if I had a good enough answer. Um, And it was, uh, there are people in this person's workplace who want to use specific pronouns. And she's like, I just can't do that because that's lying. And this is the struggle. Like how much do you acquiesce to that language in order to build a bridge, in order to communicate? And how much are you... Because her concern was like, well, if I use that, then I'm affirming a worldview that is both harmful to the person and just wrong. Mm -hmm. And that's something I think a lot of people struggle with. Like when someone insists on certain pronouns, how do you handle that in a way that's
1: Christian? Because it's complicated. Yeah, no, it's, it's very complicated. And Father Anthony, I have had former um doctoral students who are teaching at other catholic colleges and universities call me up and say hey what do you do when you have someone who presents in your classroom as transgender and wants you to use a different set of pronouns how do you how do you handle that my own uh, and and i mean this is a prudential judgment right yeah. so people are going to have to discern and pray and say lord what's the best thing to do in this situation but my own Kind of working um, assumption and 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 way of handling this is, if someone comes in my class and has a discordant gender identity and wants me to use a different name than their you know whatever name is on their birth certificate or whatever, I have no problem with that. I will use their their because. I mean I always invite students if you have a preferred name or a nickname let me know that I'll use that that's fine a lot of names have both masculine and feminine um you know attribution that's not an issue but I will not use pronouns that obviously contradict a person's um biological sex the the givenness of their body because I agree that's participating in a falsehood mm-hmm. and it's I think it's a violation of um, my own right to try to speak truthfully mm. um, as best I can, and you know, I don't always. We all fall short in that regard. But, um, and I, I, I agree that it also doesn't do the person. It's a disservice to the person because it's reinforcing a, a, a they, they have again, they've bought into a set of ideas. That offers that purports to offer them. Uh, Here's your path to happiness, wholeness, can make all the missing pieces of your life fit together in this in this new and and better way. I, again, it just it doesn't hold up to reason. It doesn't hold up to um, what we know medically and scientifically. So, yeah, I, I won't go there. Yeah, I, I'll use any name a person wants, but not not a. Um, And if it if if someone insists on a different set of pronouns, I will just not use pronouns. Mm -hmm. I'll address them by name or not at all. Uh, So can I ask, has that ever caused problems in the classroom for you? Um, For me, not yet. But I know for some of my former students teaching at other colleges around the country. Yes, it has. And in some cases, they get called out in a campus newspaper for being transphobic or whatever.
0: Um, So I'm gonna ask this question in a crazy way. Um, Isn't this all about sex in the sense that we feel like in order to be happy, there has to be sexual relationships? Like, is
1: that what this is all about or is it what? I mean, I think that in our specific culture um, and because the sexual revolution is a contributing factor here, I think that's part of the mix, but I don't think it explains all of it. I think it's more that because we have decoupled um, the gift of fertility from sex and from marriage, that if if fertility has no necessary role in how we understand marriage, then fertility is really superficial and unimportant to the person being being a man or a woman is unimportant, which is why, you know, um, one of Justice Roberts, who dissented to the Obergefell decision, said, you know what, on the on the logic of this definition of marriage, we could have three or four or five adults getting married because marriage just becomes a public declaration of love between adults who profess to love each other that confers certain legal rights but their if, if, if their sexual difference and their fertility is is in, completely incidental to that then the number of persons involved is also incidental we've so i think it's much more the, the loss of a sense of a if you will a teleology of our bodies, that our bodies mean something, our bodies point us to something. Um, and no, I don't have to be sexually active and expressive. I mean, you're, you're, the vocation you're living is a good reminder for all of us of that, right? You can be happy and flourishing as a Christian, as a single person, as a celibate person, or as a married person, but it's you still you're still giving yourself in your state of life, as a man, as a woman, and that the reality of your body is integral to that gift. It's not incidental to it.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, and I think, uh, not a difficulty, but
0: the the only way that uh, someone with gender dysphoria or any of these other difficulties, uh, the only real answer to these questions to find peace outside of whatever the world is telling them. I mean, sound simple, but it's true. Is Jesus Christ. So a lot of times we want to talk about the gender stuff right away. And because that's kind of first and foremost in the culture, but a lot of times you have to take the conversation like 14 steps back to the reality of everything. So it's
1: Mm -hmm. very hard to have these conversations with people. It is, it is, but, but I think, um, you, you, the the point you made at um, at the outset there, you know, our bodies do have a tell us they do have a directionality that we can kind of discern when we look at it honestly, openly. One of the images I try to use and think about a little bit in the book is our bodies are like a compass. They point us to our origin, which is love. Right. We we are all created by. God in the image of God we're cre- but we are they also point us toward love we're created for love and communion with other people in whatever state of life God calls us to live that but in order to read that compass well and navigate by it well we need the further map that revelation gives us right we need the person of Jesus Christ mm-hmm. who shows us what self-gift really looks like and therefore what human fulfillment Really looks like. Um, so we need, especially in a culture that is increasingly lost the ability to navigate, lost the ability to read the body thoughtfully and well. We need that deeper picture. And it's not like we're. Some people will say, "Oh, you're just you know the, this is fideism. You're 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 taking refuge in in faith and scripture, and not everyone shares that." I mean. No, there's, there's, there's two, there's the medieval theology said this Pope Benedict said this, there's two books, but only one author. There's the book of yeah. nature, which includes our bodies and the natural world, which all of which is a gift. And there's the book of scripture and we read them in light of each other. Mm-hmm. Right. So we need both to really understand who we are and what we're called to.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you remember a few years ago, I don't know exactly when, uh, and this has probably happened a few times where uh, there was a pastor priest who came out uh, at the pulpit. And Mm. of course, a lot of reactions to that. And when I first read that, it struck me as like, this is a dangerous, bad idea to do in the sense of like, I just don't think it's helpful for people to think about their priests in that way. Now, I take a step back, too, because like this is the difficulty with the whole celibacy uh, issue, because there is something that about your masculinity, when it's going to be expressed in a different way, that does have something to do with your personhood. Mm-hmm. So I, I keep going back and forth about what the deal is with this. And I'm bringing this into um, I am very aware when I look out my congregation in general, uh, for a lot of people, what their sexual orientation is, because a lot of them have families and that sort of thing. And sort of assume it. Um, I also know um, that there are a lot of people who are, either, are gay or lesbian or these other things, but that's not necessarily known by seeing their family or something like that. So my question is, how much does this need to be, how open does this need to be like in a parish? Um, does that make sense? Because like yeah. so often people feel like um, they have to keep it hidden so that other oh. parishioners will not judge them. Right. And there can be a prudence to that, too. So I struggle
1: with that. like Right. You know, yeah. No, I mean, oh, wow. Um, really interesting kind of set of issues and questions there, Father Anthony. I, I think my initial reaction um, would be similar to yours in terms of a priest coming out in the pulpit. I, I, I think in general, that's probably a bad idea because of the possibility of misunderstanding and scandal. Yeah. Right. But just people, people are not going to process that well. People are going to then make all kinds of further conclusions, which may not be true. I think that's different than a priest in a pastoral counseling setting, or let's say they're running a support group for same sex attracted people in their parish Mm -hmm. saying, you know what I've lived with, and I experienced same sex attraction too. Mm -hmm. I think that's an appropriate context for a priest if, if there's a level of trust and, it, and people know one another to share that. And, you know, I think that could really help people who are saying, Hey, can I be a Christian and navigate same sex attraction saying, well, you know what father's doing it. So mm-hmm. that could be a real witness, but from the pulpit, I mean, there's all kinds of people there of all different ages. And again, it's, it's a potential occasion of scandal. So probably not great. Yeah. Um, I do think we we have yet to find a good balance between telling our same sex attracted brothers and sisters, oh, no, no, no. You have to stay in the closet. Right. Right. That's not healthy for us, for them. Um, But also, you know, um, making it making the church a place where they can experience love, hospitality, but also the call to holiness that we all experience. And I, in the last several years, I have gotten very wary of the language of sexual orientation Hmm. um, because I think one, it's never been um, there's, there's never been conclusive scientific support for the concept. Um, All the big secular studies of sexual attraction, Kinsey in 1948, um, Klein in 1978, all of them show that sexual attraction is a spectrum, that sexual attraction is responsive to behavior and environment. So the idea of a fixed orientation, that you're born that way, one, it doesn't hold up scientifically. And two, the danger, Michael Hannon has a nice, now he's Father Urban Hannon, has a nice essay on this in First Things is that it binds same sex attracted people to their attraction and says this is your identity this is your destiny if you're not expressing this set of desire you can't be happy and fulfilled and that's a falsehood right because person can live with same sex attraction and and you know str- struggle with it it's a form of suffering for many people but still live a life of holiness, a life of chastity, right? Um, And a life of deep friendships with other people, which is how we're all called to be fulfilled. Um, While at the same time, that language blinds opposite sex attracted people, because what they get to say is, hey, I'm normal. Mm -hmm. All my sexual attraction is normal. Therefore, it's good. (laughs) And so they never even look at their own disordered sexual inclinations and attract and that that's a lie right Mm -hmm. because we all struggle with disordered sexual attraction and desires so especially in the culture in which we find ourselves so i think that i i i do not use the i don't subscribe to orientation essentialism i think it's much better to speak of attraction than orientation
0: yeah i i think that's 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 very good i I really appreciate that and as far as um people who are um, heterosexual. Um, I mean, I'm a priest. I hear stuff in the confessional, like
1: there's a law disorder for everyone all around. Absolutely. <laughs> Abs- but, but if we, if we, if we can get that message out in our parishes, you know, mm-hmm. all of us, this is why Pope Francis's image for the church is so wonderful. It's a field hospital. Yeah. We're all receiving the medicine of mercy from Christ, the great physician in the sacraments. And we're all recovering sinners. yeah, we're all struggling with our own disordered um, appetites and and habits and things that we need healing from. Yeah, and on that note, um, I'm usually hesitant to
0: um, compare my chastity and celibacy to what the church asks um, for others. Um, so if someone is, uh, gay, same sex attracted, um, they are called to celibacy. Uh, no, sorry. They're called to chastity. (laughs) Okay. You're shaking your head. Help me out here. Give me, get my language right.
1: They they are called to chastity lived in continence. Okay. That is in refraining from sexual, uh, behavior, activity, genital sex. Mm. Um, Chastity is something all Christians are called to. Right. Single, celibate, married. It's just chastity is lived in a different way in those different states in life. But to say that a same sex attracted person is called to um, celibacy is not true, Mm -hmm. right? Because celibacy is a permanent vow of continence Mm -hmm. um, undertaken for religious reasons or motivation as a public form of witness in the church. Single people are not necessarily called to celibacy, mm-hmm. but they are called to continence. There you go. Okay. Yeah. They, so they're called to chaste friendships with others that doesn't involve genital sexual behavior.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Good. That's helpful. So um, I can be a witness that you can be happy, fulfilled, uh, fully alive and continent. Um, but at the same time, I, sometimes I worry about still honoring the other person's struggle. Um, because their struggle is different. So in the context of the conversation we just had, how we're all in the field hospital, that we're all sinners, we all struggle with different things, to balance that with honoring the other person's either wounds or struggles, or however you want to put that, and that's that can be kind of tricky. Uh,
1: it, it absolutely can, it, uh, which is why, again, I mean... <clears throat> Pope Francis's model of evangelization, I think, is really helpful, right? It's based on encountering the other, he, uh, hearing them, listening to them, walking with them. Accomp- he, he loves the language of accompaniment, but walking together. We're both walking together, trying to follow Christ, listening to one another, learning from one another. But in the context of that friendship— also being able to call each other to holiness mm-hmm. and because there can be a way in which, yeah, we need to be able to share our struggles, listen to honestly to the struggles of others. But we all know people in our families, in uh, in our communities who wh- they don't want to just share their struggles. They want to wallow in them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they want to say, you know, well, woe is me. I, You know, if you had my struggles, you you wouldn't be you know, saying what you're You know what? We're all, again, we're all recovering sinners. Mm-hmm. We all have struggles. Right. We all have ways that the Lord is calling us to change and grow. So, what we have to uh, communicate, I think, to, ev- to people, um, to our parishes, to everyone, we're all walking a path of conversion. Yeah. Right. The the church is preaching that the message of the gospel calls each and every one of us to conversion. Mm -hmm. So unless I'm responding to the Lord's call in my life and trying to, as best I can, you know, turn away from sin, believe the gospel, open my life more fully to the Lord. I'm not in a position to judge or cast aspersions on other people. Um, Pope Pope Francis, I keep going to Pope Francis, but I I mean, I really think Pope Francis is a gift for the church Mm -hmm. right now, because what he's saying is we need to take the teaching of the church and pass on that teaching in its integrity, but do it in a way that we don't weaponize it against other people. The church's teaching is meant to be an invitation to mercy. It is not meant to be I'll use his language, dead stones that we pick up and hurl at each other. You know, oh, you're, you know, you're, you're violating this teaching. You're violating, you know, am I sincerely trying to turn away from the sin in my life? I'm not in a position, unless I'm doing that, I'm not in a position to challenge or call someone else to deeper conversion. Mm, Yeah. Um, As,
0: as, far as wallowing and suffering. That's me. When I wake up for seven o'clock mass, there is no suffering <laughs> like my suffering. Um, We're but... all Job first thing in the morning. <laughs> so uh, getting back to your book, um, who, who do you want to read your book? And you're allowed to say everybody, that's totally fair. But like, uh, who is this directed to?
1: I mean, honestly, father Anthony, one of the, re- one of the real motivating factors for writing the book was being at the 2015 Synod and talking to bishops there and having bishops tell me, you know what, we're hearing from the church these warnings about gender ideology, but what is that? Mm -hmm. How do I understand it? How do we offer an alternative to it? And so in a particular way, I really hope that it's Helpful to bishops and priests and catechists and religious educators because, but also to parents, Mm -hmm. because, right, parents are supposed to be the primary teachers of their children in the faith. And when I'm going out and giving talks on my book at parishes and stuff, I'm telling people, and especially the fathers, Mm. if you're not teaching your kids about gender ideology, trust me, someone else is. Yeah. And they're not teaching them what you want. You want your kids to hear yeah so we've got to equip ourselves to understand what this is to be able to say no this isn't a path towards human fulfillment and we have a better we have a better vision yeah. um, a, a more theologically but also a more medically and scientifically coherent vision of a path to happiness mm-hmm. yeah
0: because I think a lot of, a lot of uh, Catholics a lot of Christians uh, have an intuition that there's something wrong about this but it kind of stops there right? and having a more fuller picture as long as uh, along with the positive life-giving side of what the gospel has is just um, because in this and in a lot of ways, we are kind of uh, all a part of, not to get terribly dramatic, but a little bit of a lost generation as far as catechesis, understanding the faith. And it's a lot like a big project of, I think what you're doing, what a lot of people are doing is like, let's rediscover authentically who we are, who God is, who the church is. And I think this is a, a very important piece uh, of that. Um, any questions that you wished I asked you, but didn't?
1: Oh boy. Um, huh. Oh, yeah, actually, yes. Um, yeah. pra- pragmatic question. So uh, the question of where can you get this book? Oh, yeah. Oh, I was, um, oh, yeah. I was going to get um, to that. I was going to let you plug everything. But well, anyway. Well, well, but but it's an interesting story, right? <laughs> okay. Because you can't get it on Amazon. Because it's not available there, Uh-oh. Um, the publisher, because Amazon pulled Ryan Anderson's book when Harry became Sally a couple of years ago <laughs> and took it down when the Equality Act was introduced into the House of Representatives, can made a decision. Amazon's not going to sell this book. Or if they do, they're going to pull it. And then they're going to look at our other offerings too. So um, you can get it on the Tan Books website. Um, but one of the really interesting things was the day the book was released, March 8th, Tan went to Facebook and tried to buy advertising for the book. And Facebook banned the ad Wow, that day. So it's a it's a really just interesting kind of sign of the times, I think. Right. Um, That, you know, this is this is where we are. Um, There are there are folks out there who are just threatened by the church's vision and are threatened by a critique of gender ideology. So, yeah, um, it's 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 a sign of the times. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's especially fascinating because even
0: from the outset and throughout your book, like it, it takes a very charitable pastoral approach. There's like, you, like what you've said in this uh, interview, it's, it's not to weaponize any ideas. It's not to demonize any individuals at all. Um, and even those who, um, vehemently, um, uh, preach gender ideology. It's like, this isn't about them either. It's, nice. it's, it's so, yeah, it does. It says a lot. Um, and uh, to equip ourselves with both the knowledge, the understanding, um, and the uh, pastoral approaches, I think is very important. So go to, go to TAN Publishers. They have a website, TAN.com. Yeah, yeah. Uh, www.tanbooks.com. TAN yeah, sorry, say that again. I don't want to talk over you.
1: www.tanbooks.com. Unraveling Gender, The Battle Over Sexual
0: Difference by John S. Krabowski, uh, a good read. And thank you so much for uh,
1: having this early morning interview with me. I really appreciate it. Uh, Father Anthony, thank you so much for having me on. And please uh, give my regards to Father Harrison. I'm sorry I missed him. I will do that. I'll yell at him for being a lazy <laughs> well, I Canadian. Mean, I think he would, have, <clears throat> he would have added another dimension because I know he's interested in theological anthropology, too. And uh, yeah, maybe we'll have you on, on on a show together. We can talk about whatever. So if you're open to well, that, we'd love to Well, you that. know where to
0: find me. Yes, I do. I do now. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. God bless.